This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. on Twitter that she spoke with the 22-year-old and that, quote, he explained to me that he had arrived from Mali a few months ago dreaming of building his life here in France. I told him that his heroic act is an example to all citizens and that the city of Paris will obviously be very keen to support him in his efforts to settle in France. That man who is able to scale buildings and floors just happened to be in the right place at the right time watching a football match, which is why he was there in that particular part of France, I believe in 2018, when that happened. What if I told you there are people in your life, church, like that child who is dangling, like that child who is living helplessly just hanging on by a thread. There are people in your life who are living like that. Maybe it's physically, maybe they're on the brink of suicide, struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts, or or maybe it's spiritually. They're doubting God's existence. They're running far from him for whatever reason they may have, and God has placed you nearby to join with him in his redemptive plan of rescuing such people created in his image. You don't live next to the people you live next to by chance. You do not work where you work by coincidence. You are not married to the spouse that you are married to outside of the providence and the plan of God. And you may be thinking, but I married a psychopath, Pastor John. My job is the worst, and my neighbors are the definition of ridiculousness. And to that, I would say your spouse is probably only a psychopath because they married you. (laughs) Thank God that you have the job that you have, and you're collecting a paycheck or a pension or a retirement. And you're not exactly Mr. Rogers, and you're not in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and your dog probably poops in their yard too, So you need to relax, neighbor. We'll be looking at Esther 4 this morning. And just to kind of catch you up to speed, uh, over the last two weeks uh, that we looked at, or three weeks, um, rather, we're zoomed in on this king named King Xerxes, most powerful man in all of the world at this time. He is... uh, reigning over 127 provinces. We talked about it being really the size of the United States or close to it. And uh, we find out that in an angry fit, he ends up demoting, diminishing, and divorcing his wife, Queen Vashti. And then years go by and some young man comes up with the great idea, uh, why don't you have like this Miss Persian pageant? And the Israelites, some of them anyway, are still in Persia at this time. They have not all gone back to Jerusalem, as Isaiah said they should have, but some have chosen not to. And so we're then um, 
invited into the lives of Mordecai, who's an Israelite, people don't know he's an Israelite, and Esther, and Esther then is a part of this Miss Persian pageant with what the Greek historian Josephus declares could have been around 400 women vying to win the spot for queen, and then those who did not win were concubines. Not a great future, but Esther was in it to win it. We talked about that. It certainly doesn't seem like that was the will of God for Esther's life. Certainly doesn't seem like it was the wisest move on her behalf or Mordecai's behalf for allowing his daughter to go into such a godless pageant. But she was in it, and she was in it to win it, and she won And then we find out Mordecai, who works in an office somewhere near to the king, probably a lower level office in Susa there, the capital city of Persia. Mordecai is overhearing a couple eunuchs co-conspiring to kill King Xerxes, and he delivers this message to now Queen Esther, and it is found out to be true. So Mordecai Uh, really through his bravery and sharing this with Queen Esther, uh, really saves the king's life, this godless pagan king who thinks he's a god by sharing this horrible, horrible act by a couple eunuchs who were planning to kill him. And then what happens? Well, Mordecai doesn't get promoted. A vile by the name of Haman, and he is the vile in this story. An Agagite named Haman is promoted to second in command. And we talked a little bit about the tension between the Agagites and the Israelites. They have generations and generations and generations of tension. And what happens? Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. The Agagite refuses to bow to Haman. And Haman is furious. Day after day, week after week, year after year, Mordecai does not bow to Haman. And Haman says, you know what? Killing Mordecai would be easy, but I'd rather kill all of his people, the Jews. And so Mordecai's people, which could be up to 15 million at this point in history in Persia, are all in jeopardy, and this edict goes out. The king, without really understanding everything, sends out this edict on behalf of Haman to kill all of the Jews. And so now this edict has gone out, and we are picking up in chapter four of the book of Esther. And I will start by reading verses one through five. Here's what it says. And you don't have it on the screen, but, but just listen. I, I want to set us up here. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter. There's this sense of mourning in Mordecai. And I wanted to read this this morning. I had not planned to because I wanted to move really quickly. But I I want you to know 
that some of you perhaps may need to be in a sense of mourning today. Or some of you may be in a season of mourning right now. And you're just aching for something. What are you aching for this morning? Mordecai is aching for his people, all of which are in desperate need of salvation. But he went only as far as the king's gate. Verse three, in every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning amongst the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing, many laying in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came, told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. She sends him a suit, seems like an odd thing to do, um, but she wanted him to get out of the torn clothes and the sackcloth and the ashes, and she wanted him to come into the king's palace, but he was not ready for that. Now verse five. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. And so verse six starts off and says this. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the impact or the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. First, we're gonna talk a little bit about the opportunity. Mordecai had presented Esther with an opportunity. Mordecai delivers here a message to Hathak to give to Esther, one of the eunuchs. They deliver this to Esther. Esther's now been given the opportunity to bring forth change in the lives of many people, but Esther is not alone. We too, as God's people, have opportunities every day to bring forth significant change in the lives that we live and in the lives around us. God is constantly at work around us, the highs, the lows. He's presenting us with opportunities to join with him in his redemptive work. There's no such thing, I want you to know this this morning, church, there's no such thing as an insignificant person in the economy of God. There's no such thing. And I would even go as far as saying, there's no such thing as an insignificant, an insignificant time or an insignificant moment. Nothing is insignificant. The time you woke up this morning, significant. And for some of you, it was too late because you showed up late for church. What you ate for breakfast this morning, significant. What you listened to on your way to church, significant. 
who you will stand next to in the grocery line tomorrow night. Completely significant. Choosing to spend intimate time before the day's end with God, 100% and totally significant. I would suggest to you that I don't think there's a moment of insignificance in the lives that we live. The ancient Greek language had two specific words for time. One was chronos, which is where we get our word chronological, and that deals with times such as days, weeks, months, years, so on, so forth. But they have a second word, a word that we don't even have an equivalent to in our English dictionaries. And this word is kairos. Kairos. It's the second word for time. This word deals with the quality of time. This time is of the utmost significance. Dr. James White says this in regards to Kairos. He says, it's an opportune time where we are confronted with a choice or a decision regarding who we are, who we are becoming, and what our life impact will be. In that sense of time, filled with opportunity, runs deeply throughout the scriptures. It's this idea of a moment in time where we're confronted with an opportunity to decide who are we going to be? Who are we? It's this Kairos time. As Jesus was overlooking Jerusalem, some of his last hours, Luke records in Luke 19, 41 and 42, he's over this ridge overlooking the city of Jerusalem. It says this, as he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Verse 42 says, and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. In verse 44, the back half of it, says, you did not recognize, Jesus said, the time of God's coming to you. Speaking of the Jews here, many of which did not recognize the opportunity that was presented right before them. God in the flesh, the expression of the fullness of God right before them. They did not have eyes to see. What would it look like if we treated every moment like it was a Kairos moment? a moment of great significance to display who we are and who we want to be in this life, church. Esther here is presented with this Kairos moment. What is she going to do? What if we lived as if every moment was of great significance? How much different would our lives look? Paul puts it this way, which is my screen saver, say, say, oh wait, it's my screen savior. Okay, bad joke. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Here's how Paul puts it. So whether you eat or drink, I love this one, or whatever you do, 
Do it all for the glory of God. So you wanna live a life of great significance, not thinking about, is this the time where I step up or is this the time I should act or is this the time I should give to Christ aid and live sacrificially? Is this the time? No, 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 Paul says, whatever you do, live in it. Do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. This is why I say, Living as a believer is the most freeing thing in all of the world because I don't have to change for you. Because I don't have to worry about what you think about me. I don't have to lose sleep at night over that. I can just be who God created me to be and understand that he's going to be glorified in that. Give a rip what she thinks about me or he thinks about me or this group of people think about me. I'm called to do whatever I do, unto the glory of God. Esther's presented with a Kairos moment. We're given these moments every day on a regular basis. Let's continue reading. Esther 4, 9 through 11. We'll pick up speed here. Hathik, once again, this eunuch, who's going back and forth between Mordecai and Esther, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Secondly, we have the cost. So we have the opportunity, now we have this cost, and Esther is feeling the weight of this cost. Have you ever been dealt with a difficult decision, or have you ever been in a difficult circumstance where you were literally thinking for every reason to say no? You knew that this decision was going to cost you something of great significance. You see, if I I give God this much every week, what happens if my AC unit goes out? Or, Or if I speak up for this injustice, what will this group of people who who I've been a part of for so long, what will they think of me if I speak up for this injustice? There's a cost. Ultimately, what can easily go through our minds when we're faced with opportunities that are going to cost us something is the selfish question, how is this going to affect me? And I think Esther's wrestling with this at this part of Esther chapter four. She's thinking, if I go up to the king, in the inner court without being summoned and he doesn't want to see me, that could be all she wrote, that she could be killed. And then she says something further. She says, I haven't seen my husband in 30 days. And what that means is not he's been out in war, he's been out working. And what that means is he's been with other women, most likely many of the other concubines, most likely. So she's saying right now wouldn't be the greatest time. We've had no pillow talk. 
Uh, We've had no meals together. We've had no Netflix. I mean, nothing. We we just haven't been together. I have very little uh, relational equity at this time. It's extremely easy to forget once you get a position, how you got the position and who allowed you to get the position in the first place. Now, I'm not saying this was something that was holy or this was a holy movement for Esther to get into this position, but it certainly wasn't outside of the sovereignty of God. So here she is. Esther seems to have forgotten that a bit here with this response to Mordecai who allowed her to be in this position and to be safe and to be spared all this time. Esther was quick to put all of her chips in the middle of the pot when it came to vying for the queen's spot. Now she is queen and her people are in need and she is tempted to play it safe. It can be easy for all of us to forget that if it wasn't for God's grace, we wouldn't be in the position that we are in today. And it seems like the higher God elevates us, the more he is calling us to a life of sacrifice. The more the cost and the weight of the cost should be felt amongst us. When much is given, much is required. When much is given, much is required. If God has blessed you, he has blessed you to be a blessing. And being a blessing will cost us something. But too often we can look at the price tag, the inconvenience, the risk, and too often we can allow the cost of being a blessing to cause us to tap out, to give up, to be TKO'd like McGregor last night, I found out um, from, the, from the big fight. A life of significance comes at the cost of sacrifice. You wanna live a life of significance? You wanna be used by God? You want God to wring out every bit of your passion, your position, your energy in this life? A life of significance is going to come at the cost of a sacrifice or sacrifice. Doesn't make any sense for me to be here teaching you guys be your lead pastor, it makes no sense at all. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. When I came home from a church camp at 13 years old, I told my mom I'm called to be a pastor. We were nominal Catholics at the time. She thought I was gonna trade in my polo shirt for a robe. She didn't know what that meant. But later when God's grace and goodness invaded my life in a way that I can never have imagined, it was clear that his plans are not my plans or my mom's plans. His ways are not my ways. Now as I grow older, I'm constantly being reminded that God calls us to a position. He connects that with our passions and he does so for his purposes and his plans. It's gonna involve a cost. It's gonna involve sacrifice. That's just my story. Every single one of us have a story. Every single one of us have our own stories 
and it involves God calling us to a life of significance and sacrifice. Let's move forward. Esther 4, verses 12 through 14. How's Mordecai going to react to this word from Esther? When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That's a statement of faith. That's bold faith right there from a man who's mourning. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Here we have the challenge. Mordecai's delivering this knockout blow to his guardian daughter, Esther. Mordecai delivers the biggest mic drop moment possibly of the entire book of Esther. He's saying, don't forget where you come from, daughter of mine. Don't forget that you're one of us. The Jewish people have gone through a lot in history and now they could be facing extinction and you're in the position of influence that you're in for a reason, for a purpose, for such a time as this. Don't you see this Kairos moment, Esther? Don't you see this opportunity? Esther, Mordecai also makes a point in verse 14. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief for the Jews will come somewhere else. That is a bold statement of faith when some potentially up to 15 million people could be at stake. Essentially, Mordecai is making a very important point that can easily get overlooked in all of this. He's saying God's plan will prevail regardless if you or me or anyone else joins him or not. If it's not me, it'll be her. If it's not her, it'll be him. God will use someone. God is always ready to call the next person up for his glory and his purpose. I want you to know that this morning. But always remember, he prefers, he plans, and he yearns to use you for his purposes and his plans. But if you won't, if you just stay seated, if you don't want to act and move in faith, he'll use someone else. But remember, he, he yearns to use you, each one of you. There are two types of depression that I believe many of us can wrestle with. There's one type of depression that, that says, I'm worthless. I have no use. I have no worth. There's no reason for me to get out of bed this morning. And then there's this other side of depression that, that can really be pride. And it says, if I don't do anything, if I don't show up to work, the whole place is gonna crumble. If I don't preach today, oh, the church will be vacant next Sunday. It's this idea of the exact opposite problem with the first one, it's elevating yourself too highly and thus it can still bring you into a depression. 
This is why Paul said, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's an understanding, I believe, that balances your significance in God's plans. You are extremely significant. But understand this, if you don't wake up tomorrow, God's kingdom's still moving forward, okay? If God calls you home or calls her home, we've been praying for some people with some late stage cancer, we're praying for miracles, we're praying for healing, we're praying for comfort, we're praying, we're praying for peace, God's plan still moving forward. If I decide to go off the rails, I'm not gonna pastor anymore, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, I don't want anything to do with the mission, this church is still gonna move forward. Your significance needs to be rooted in God's plans. Not contingent on God's plans, but it needs to be rooted in God's plans and my significance. Here's what Peter says. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people. Don't get it twisted. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful or marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9, you may not feel like you're royalty now, but you need to understand you are royalty because you are God's special possession. And God gives his people special appointments and those special appointments are of great significance. There's a challenge presented here to Esther. And we also deal with challenges in our life and our personal journey. What is it for you? And this is why you are where you are, and this is why you are who you are, and this is why you are with who you are with, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our opportunity, and it will cost us something, and it is a challenge that I hope we all accept. Now, we will put a cap on it with this. Esther 4, verses 15 and 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai that rhymes. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I want to leave us with this question this morning. What is your resolve? And look at Esther's game plan here. They're all making progress. Now, Mordecai was just wimpy guy who's just dying probably on the wrong hills, not bowing to Haman, probably should have bowed, talked about that two weeks ago, probably dying on the wrong hills. But now Mordecai's starting to step up. Now here's Esther. She wanted to take the easy route. Mordecai wasn't gonna let her. He was gonna continue to send back a word. And now Esther's saying, all right, I hear you. 
You're right. And she comes with resolve. My question this morning to you in this application of the text is what, what is your resolve? Esther came to the resolve of if it cost me my life, let it be. She came to her senses. She seemed to understand the fact that I am where I am for a reason. And I hope all of us could come away with that resolve today. That you are where you are for a reason. Wherever you are in life, young, middle-aged, old. Maybe you have climbed the corporate ladder. Maybe you're climbing the corporate ladder. Maybe you're holding the ladder for someone else to climb. Maybe you're retired and you don't want anything to do with the ladder. Or maybe you feel like you've lost your way. You're hurting, you're broken, you're depressed. Can I encourage you this morning, church, to find your resolve in the cross of Christ? To find your resolve in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find your life in the greatest treasure that there is, which is a life of significance dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you find that resolve today? And maybe you just need to be reminded of it. Maybe you just need to be reminded what you were created for. Maybe you've been off the path. I pray that you would come back to that resolve today. When we find that sweet spot, we too can come to the resolve in whatever circumstance that life may bring us. If I perish, I perish. But nevertheless, not my will, but his be done. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful. I'm grateful for this book that many scholars, especially in the early days, did, did not want to be a part of the canon in the Old Testament, but I'm grateful for the lessons that just ooze out of it. Father, I pray that our resolve as the church of Jesus Christ would be to live a life of significance, to understand that we have not been given the passions that we've been given uh, for no reason, that there's significance in all of that. We've not been given the position that we have been given for no reason. There is great significance in each moment in each desire, in each passion, in each position that we have. And Father, I pray that we would answer the call to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray for courage to move in such a way. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor John. For our closing hymn, let's do only two verses, two verses of 